Hello, and welcome to the latest recording in the Global Perspectives podcast series. My name is Matthew Bullock, and I am the MIA Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy. And today, we're fortunate to be joined by Jenna Bernard, Co-Head of Global Bonds here at Janice Henderson. Great to have you here, Jenna. So, Jenna, I've been really looking forward to this conversation because there's such a range of topics to discuss uh, in the world of fixed income. And you know, it's such a dynamic market. In particular, it feels like it's more dynamic this year where the market's really just on tenterhooks waiting for any announcement, whether it comes to interest rates or inflation. Um, so, in, you know, in fact, we've postponed this podcast. We're going to do it just over a week ago, but waiting for some data when it came to inflation uh, and labor statistics. So this, you know, in such a dynamic market, I want to go into some of the, the drivers of that. But before I do that, I want to go a little bit back in time to 2022, which I know was a terrible year for bond investors. Um, and 2023 was going to be the year of the bond, the recovery period, which didn't really happen. So the question that I get asked a lot when I'm talking to clients is, 2024, is this finally the year of the bond? So we think about what happened in 2023 that meant it wasn't the year of the bond. Um, broadly, the market was right on where it priced US interest rates peaking all the way back in October 2022. We priced that US terminal rate, peak rates, this cycle would be 5% or just over. And we got to five and a quarter in July 2023. So the issue wasn't really the market's pricing of short-term interest rates. What happened in 2023 was a really unusual event, which is after you had the last rate hike, which in the US was in July 2023. Bank of England was August, ECB was September. But let's take July for the US. Um, 10-year yields surged. They surged over 100 basis points in about two or three months. In capital terms, that means bonds dropped about 8% in that three months. And that behavior of bond yields actually rising aggressively after the last rate hike, we haven't seen in the last 40 years. So if you went back to any cycle from, I don't know, say 1984 onwards, 10 yields just decline. Once you have the last rate hike, the market knows it's done, basically. Cuts eventually happen. You can debate when, when 10 year yields fall. And there's six cycles since 1984, and they fell in all of those examples. So, this phenomenon where 10 year yields surged after the last rate hike, that's what happened from 1969 through to 1981. So, very kind of 1970s bond market behavior. Um, technically, it was something called a bear steepener, which I don't know too much for this podcast, but two yields rose a bit, but 10 year yields rose even more. So the yield curve shape steepened. Again, exactly what happened in the 70s. And that's really difficult to square with the inflation fundamentals that look completely divergent from the 1970s. And I think it's something you want to talk about later. So, yeah, it was disappointing, but not because I think the market was wrong on where interest rates were going to peak. And I keep talking about the US because it's just under half of the global aggregate bond index. It's very important. It's just disproportionate weighting in US dollar bonds. So it wasn't the interest rate pricing that was completely wrong. It was the behavior of these longer term yields um, following the pattern 
something we wrote an article about last October, actually. Um, so I thought that's just, you want to start there? <laughs> so we'll start there. I mean, if we got interest rate cuts and 10-year yields rose, they didn't fall, I've got nothing. I've got no historical case studies going back to the 19, mid-1960s where that's happened. So if, it, if we're going to get rate cuts, which short the market's pricing, equities are assuming, central banks are indicating and the inflation data supports, if we get rate cuts and 10-year yields rise, I've not seen anything like that going back 60, 70 years. And then we've got a whole world of problem um, problems for multiple asset classes and for just understanding what on earth is going on. So, you know, bond markets are on, I think, pretty solid ground this year um, in terms of the expectation for rate cuts. You can debate when they're going to start, who cuts first, who cuts the most. Um, and if it's not the year of the bond, um, then I think it gets very interesting. So then let's, let's flip to the US then. So you've got a message there of from Powell, the rates have peaked, mm -hmm. but then sort of pushing back on their expectation of immediate cuts. So is it definite that you're going to see rate cuts around the world this year? So the expectation for rate cuts and the reason they're priced into bond markets is almost entirely a function of inflation, or I should say disinflation dynamics. Um, we had this remarkable disinflation and core disinflation, not just headline, uh, at the back end of last year. And that was a really globally synchronized surprise to the downside. Um, and we're sitting here, I think if you take the US, you've got core PCE, which is the core inflation measure that the Fed targets at 2.9 year on year. Even with last week's surprise, um, yeah, six month core PCEs was at 1.9. Now it would be low to mid twos. Um, and you've got base effects, which mean that lagging 12 month inflation is just mathematically, it's going to be very difficult for it even to bottom here. It's going to be dragged down because of base effects. So by May, you know, which is when the market's playing with a May or June rate cut in the US, you're talking kind of 2.4, 2.5 core PCE. Um, so if you hold rates at five and a quarter, the argument would be that the real interest rate, the difference between inflation and that nominal interest rate is rising. Um, and you're getting back you know, to levels of inflation that are near enough the 2% targets. Very different, again, from that um, 1970s experience that everyone seems to anchor to. You know, core PCE did not fall below 2.7 from 1966 through to 1992. And when it did get to 2.7, 2.8, it just catapulted back up. So if you're getting core inflation down to those levels, um, with lagging rents in the US also likely to be a weighing on core inflation over the next 12 months. Um, that's pretty solid ground for cuts to start by mid-year. And then um, maybe you turn to Europe where actually cuts may even come a bit earlier in the Fed. So the debate there about whether it's April or June. Again, you're gonna get headline and core inflation coming down very fast and towards those kind of mid mid twos for core by the summer. Um, 
Is there anything yes. worry about reigniting inflation? Is there anything you're looking out for on the... So there's nothing at the moment in the data. Obviously, you always worry about it because, you know, geopolitical shocks and commodity prices and things. But actually, what's going on under the surface is, um, you know, actually we're having a lot of disinflationary commodity shocks. If you take natural gas, for example, whether it's European LNG prices or Asian or US natural gas domestic prices, they just keep falling. See that daily on Bloomberg screen. Oil price hasn't risen since the October turmoil in the Middle East. Um, and then goods prices remain pretty weak. And services, obviously a debate about how slowly or fast that might get squeezed out. But as we sit here today, I wouldn't say there's anything under the surface that's a rising inflationary force as we speak. Um, it's something people worry about, that a new shock may come, but that's not what's been going on. Um, again, it's very different to the 1970s. So if you took the US gasoline price in the 1970s, you know, you'd get these old shocks, then it would just plateau. It would just plateau, and then you get another shock and it would rise. You wouldn't have these big retracements back down that we see in the likes of natural gas and even oil prices. So do you think, yeah, if I look at the actions of central banks when they increase rates, mm -hmm. there was an accusation they moved too late too slowly. The reverse of that could be true this time round, which is the banks are too far, too slow to cut rates. Do I you think that's think that's a risk. It's a revealed preference of central banks. I think they say this quite explicitly that there's always a risk that they don't squeeze out inflation. It's the 1970s all over again, and they'd rather be too late um, than too early on rate cuts. So based off that then, if they are going to be too late on the rate cuts, and we saw the UK go into recession, I'll just stick to the UK for the moment, is the risk then that the market is not pr correctly pricing in a recession, and actually we, we could end up in a deeper recession than anticipated? Yeah, I think um, that's always a risk with given the lags of monetary policy. Um, Andy Haldane, who was the chief economist at the Bank of England's I think quite explicitly warning about this in the last week or so that actually to get some insurance cuts in now is a good thing just to stave off that risk to growth because you're never going to get the timing quite perfect. Um, but, you know, I think the last two years, it's clear that central banks would rather risk growth than sticky inflation. Um, obviously, this is a debate for outside the US because within the US, you've got a much stronger GDP dynamic going on. But in geographies like Europe or the UK, where you know, growth has really been stagnant for two years now, Te mild technical recessions here and there, but just really lackluster. Um, yeah, I think it's still inflation at the forefront of the central bank's mind. I mean, I think the longer they leave it, the bigger the risk of larger cuts eventually coming. Um, but they'd rather be late than, than early. I think historically as well, the Federal Reserves tend to lead, lead rather rate cutting and rate hiking cycles. That might not be the case this time. I think I mentioned the ECB <laughs> possibly might sneak a cut in a month earlier. You know, we'll see what happens. But it does t has historically tended to be the case that the US would lead and other central banks would follow. So I want to briefly touch on credit. Mm -hmm. um, in the world of credit, the word resilience has been used quite a lot as far as, uh, you know, there have been 
obviously the rapid rate increases that we've talked about, but then corporates have generally held up mm -hmm. okay. Uh, and we haven't seen the sort of defaults that we probably would have expected going back to so 12, 18 months ago when we started to see the rate um, rises coming through. So how do you think about credit right now? What are the sort of areas that you feel more comfortable in and what are the areas that you're also avoiding? I mean, I think credit spreads have moved all over the place with what was going on in the rates markets. Um, but yeah, defaults have been extremely low. And I would say no huge surprises um, in terms of the sectors that have got in trouble. Um, so it's not been really a new narrative to drive credit markets. Um, I think the problem sitting here today for credit is you could get very bullish on credit if you looked at it on a yield basis. And that's largely because the government bond yields are still so high and then you get a spread on top for the credit risk. But from an all-in yield perspective, these are still some of the highest yields we've seen in you know, 15 years. So from a yield perspective, there's a lot of hungry yield buyers out there. Um, that could be um, insurance companies who are selling annuities. It could be retail investors who are just attracted by the all-in yield. Um, but then if you looked at credit just on that spread element, so just the extra yield you get to compensate for the credit risk, you could get very bearish. Because <laughs> it's pretty much price again that defaults are going to stay at 1%, 2%. I mean, just historically low levels. So... You take your pick, really. At the moment, credit's been driven by the yield buyers. There seems to be just incredible demand to lock in those yields, um, particularly in investment grade, which is more of a core fixed income product. So few defaults, higher quality, but longer dated, longer duration. Um, there's been a huge surge in supply year to date, both in Europe and in the US, and but the demand has more than outstripped that. So do you see defaults? Picking up materially? Um, not materially, no. I mean, you had little mini peaks in defaults, particularly in the low market, which is a floating rate asset class. So interest rates for those companies did go up a lot with interest rates. Um, but I wouldn't say there's a new default story out there as we speak. Um, what about so sectors? Does that make a difference? Sectors... Yeah, it does for us because we don't run money against an index so we can avoid problematic sectors. Um, so it has been more of a sector story, I'd say, in the last couple of years. If you go back, you know, 2014, 15, we had the shale gas defaults in the US that drove US high yield default rates up to mid-single digit. Um, then we washed out some of the kind of weaker zombie companies post-COVID. And then since then, it's, you know, sectors like communications in the US, uh, real estate in Europe has been problematic. So, yeah, for us, you know, running money not against an index is quite easy to avoid problem sectors and problem credits because often they'll be zombies for a while before they actually default. Yeah, because I'm just sort of thinking there's lots of headlines I see in the paper more to do with well, property is an obvious mm -hmm. one, but also yeah. um, banks in the US or sort mm -hmm. of small, mid-sized banks. Um, and sort of pressure building up on those. Yep. Where there's some sort of impact that could have a much broader impact, contagion impact on the market. Um, no, I think it would have. It was pre-2008. 
Um, but that regional bank is banking crisis last March, um, when it exploded, the Fed just came in and offered liquidity to the banks, completely separate from the interest rate policy. Um, and then actually this year, there's been problems in the German banking sector related to commercial real estate. Um, but again, quite idiosyncratic and small. Um, so no, it, didn't, it doesn't seem to have had the kind of systemic contagion effects that you would expect and that we saw in prior cycles. Um, arguably it's had an impact on lending, ability to lend, willingness to lend, um, but not in the systemic risks that credit spreads are often so sensitive to and then drive credit spreads at certain times. So just to sort of finish off, one of the things I wanted to touch on is, I mean, you mentioned briefly, I think in your first response, you mentioned geopolitics. Mm-hmm. And no, I'm not going to ask, I mean, you can go into politics if you wish in the kind of discussion, but I'm not going to ask you so much about you know, your views on any of these things. But if we look at this year, it's sort of slated as the biggest year for elections as far mm-hmm. as the majority of the, pop- the world population going to the polls. You've also got the instability surrounded, um, you know, surrounding the war in Ukraine. You've got instability uh, in Gaza. Now, there's lots of sort of unknown things that could occur over the course of the year. And what I'm really interested in is how, from a portfolio perspective, do you think about these things? How do you protect a portfolio against so many different things that could happen in such an unstable environment? Uh, It's just really difficult because the dominant factor driving the bond market is going to be cyclical dynamics, inflation, growth. Yeah, we had instability and we have had instability in the Middle East since October and the oil price has fallen. The natural gas prices natural gas price has collapsed over thirty percent. So as a portfolio manager, I'm sitting there looking at the things I can understand and which drive the performance of the asset class, the cyclical. We have unpredictable headlines and we can speculate on what they may be, but even if they do hit, they can drive commodity prices in a way you wouldn't expect. Um, and oftentimes they may be expressed through curve shape rather than necessarily aggregate bond yields as well. Come to that, we'll go into that detail in this podcast. But I would say that all of your questions have been predicated on inflation shocks. And we have a major disinflation shock going on from China. I've talked about commodities and actually how disinflationary they are under the surface. So I think what's really interesting, actually, is that I come into a, a bond podcast like this and have questions about all oh, these potential inflation shocks that it's 1970s all over again. There's this massive anchoring to the 1970s. And I see it for central banks as well. The last mile is the hardest. That IMF paper from last September used data from 1973. Look at the 1940s. You have inflation shocks that then just collapse because commodity prices collapse or supply comes back. There are many different inflation paradigms that we can look back to, but we're fighting this complete 1970s obsession that central bankers don't want to be Arthur Burns. And that, you know, the Middle East is all like the 1970s. Go and have a look at the US gasoline price in the 70s. It didn't come back down. It just went up, plateaued, went up, plateaued. It's tricky. I know the burden of proof is from the bomb balls. No one believes the disinflation, but the surprise could be this year that core inflation just comes back down to the mid twos, low twos, as is priced by the bond market. Um, And we get rate cuts, 
rates don't stay at five and a half forever. And actually, the bond market's pricing in that rates come down three and a half to four percent in the US, UK over the next two years. It's not particularly aggressive. So, yeah, let's have a podcast about all the risks of the downside because I can. We'll definitely talk do about that. Those. We'll definitely do that next time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I don't, you know, I can understand why that anchoring goes on. Um, I think that probably the biggest worry would be the US election, actually, for bond investors and the fiscal dynamics. Um, that would be the new one. I another podcast of, close to the time. Though. Yeah. Not sure it'd be that helpful. You might want to do it with US portfolio managers. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's going to be a global event. And as I said, 45% of the global ag index is US dollar, US dollar bonds. But again, I think everyone's predicated to think of constant fiscal expansion as their base case. It'd be interesting to see how that, that pans out this year. But, um, you know, as you sit here today, two, three years after these major inflation shocks, it's panning out much better than most important investors could have hoped for. If we're looking at core inflation. You know, we're really starting to diverge from that sticky inflation narrative, last month the hardest narrative, which was all anchored to the 70s. Um, we've got a bit more work to do. Still too high from a levels perspective on core inflation, even in the US, which has led to the disinflation because it didn't have the natural gas in shock we had in Europe. Um, but potentially we're a few months away from very interesting time for bond markets. Considering the time, um, I think we'll finish it there. But I want to personally thank you, Jenna, so much for all of your time. It's been fascinating. And very importantly, to thank the audience as well for listening. And of course, if any of our listeners wish to learn more about Jenna Sanderson's investment views, or if you have any other questions, then please don't hesitate to contact your client relationship manager or visit our website. So with that, I thank you all very much for listening and I wish you a very pleasant rest of the day. Important information. Fixed income securities are subject to interest rate, inflation, credit, and default risk. The bond market is volatile. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall and vice versa. The return of principal is not guaranteed and prices may decline if an issuer fails to make timely payments or its credit strength weakens. Definitions. 10-year treasury. Yield is the interest rate on U.S. treasury bonds that will mature 10 years from the date of purchase. Basis point. 1 basis point. BP equals 1 100 of a percentage point. 1 BP. 4. Royal 1.01%. Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index, also known as the Global Ag, is a measure of global investment grade debt from 28 local currency markets. This multi-currency benchmark includes treasury, government-related, corporate and securitized fixed-rate bonds from developed and emerging markets issuers. Consumer Price Index, CPI, is an unmanaged index representing the rate of inflation of the U.S. consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. Core Personal Consumption Expenditure, PCE. Price Index is a measure of prices that people living in the U.S. pay for goods and services, excluding food and energy. Credit Rating, a score given by a credit rating agency, such as S&P Global Ratings, Moody's and Fitch on the creditworthiness of a borrower. For example, S&P ranks investment-grade bonds from the highest AAA down to BBB and high yields bonds from BB through B down to CCC. In terms of declining quality and greater risk, i.e. CCC-rated borrowers carry a greater risk of default. Credit spread is the difference in yield between securities with similar maturity, but different credit quality. Widening spreads generally indicate deteriorating creditworthiness of corporate borrowers and narrowing indicate improving, cyclical, relating to economic cycles, i.e. the expansion and contraction of the economy over time. Cyclical can also relate to companies or industries that are highly sensitive to changes in the economy, such that revenues generally are higher in periods of economic prosperity and expansion and are lower in periods of economic downturn and contraction. Default. The failure of a debtor, such as a bond issuer, to pay interest or to return an original amount loaned when due. Disinflation. A decline or slowing in the rate of inflation. E.e. Prices are rising at a slower rate than before. 
Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates, and vice versa. Bond prices move up when yields go down, and vice versa. Fiscal policy describes government policy relating to setting tax rates and spending levels. Fiscal policy is separate from monetary policy, which is typically set by a central bank. Fiscal expansion relates to government policy that seeks to expand the economy, such as higher spending or lower taxes. Floating rate asset, a debt security, where the interest payments are not fixed over the life of the instrument, but vary in response to a reference rate, such as the overnight lending rate or the rate of inflation. High yield bond, also known as a sub-investment grade bond or junk bond. These bonds usually carry a higher risk of the issuer defaulting on their payments, so they are typically issued with a higher interest rate, coupon, to compensate for the additional risk. Inflation is the rate at which prices of goods and services are rising in an economy. Investment grade bond, a bond typically issued by governments or companies perceived to have a relatively low risk of defaulting on their payments, reflected in the higher rating given to them by credit ratings agencies. Maturity. The maturity date of a bond is the date when the principal investment and any final coupon is paid to investors. Shorter dated bonds generally mature within five years, medium term bonds within five to 10 years, and longer dated bonds after 10 plus years. Monetary policy refers to the policies of a central bank aimed at influencing the level of inflation and growth in an economy. It includes controlling interest rates and the supply of money. Monetary tightening refers to central bank activity aimed at curbing inflation and slowing down growth in the economy by raising interest rates and reducing the supply of money. Nominal data reflects economic data quoted in current prices, so it incorporates inflation. Recession is a downturn in the economy. A technical recession is where an economy contracts for two consecutive quarters. The real interest rate is the rate of interest an investor, saver or lender receives after allowing for inflation. Systemic risk, the risk of a critical or harmful change in the financial system as a whole, which would affect all markets and asset classes, i.e. the whole system. Yield, the level of income on a security over a set period, typically expressed as a percentage rate. For equities, a common measure is the dividend yield, which divides recent dividend payments for each share by the share price. For a bond, at its most simple, this is calculated as the coupon payment divided by the current bond price. A yield curve plots the yields, interest rate, of bonds with equal credit quality, but differing maturity dates. Typically, bonds with longer maturities have higher yields. An inverted yield curve occurs when short-term yields are higher than long-term yields. Zombie company, a company that earns just enough money to continue operating, but not enough to have a realistic chance of paying off their debt. They are often close to insolvency. U.S. Treasury securities are direct debt obligations issued by the U.S. government. The investor is a creditor of the government. Treasury bills and U.S. government bonds are guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, are generally considered to be free of credit risk, and typically carry lower yields than other securities. The views presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal, or tax advice, or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security, investment strategy, or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed, and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janus Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission, or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janus Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janus Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janus Henderson Investors, International Limited, Reg number 3594615, Janus Henderson. Investors, UK Limited, Reg no 906355, Janus Henderson. Fund Management, UK Limited, Reg no 2678531. Each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopgate, London, ECTM3 AE, and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. And Janus Henderson Investors, Europe SA. Reg number B222848, at 2, Rue de Bitbourg, L. Confi73, Luxembourg, and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B. The US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janus Henderson Group, PLC. C. Canada through Janus Henderson. 
Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D. Singapore by James Henderson. Investors Singapore Limited. Co-registration near store. Nineteen nine nine seven and seven seven two n. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E. Hong Kong by James Henderson. Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by James Henderson. Investors Singapore Limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its subregulations. G. Japan by James Henderson. Investors Japan Limited. Regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business, and type 2 financial instruments business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson. Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 47-124-279-5111. And its related bodies corporate including Janice Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 1665 AFSL 444 and Janice Henderson. Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43-164-177-244, AFSL 44268. I. The Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited. Regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated material, nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions on its resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material, you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East, and any inquiries should be made to Janus Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service, and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors, and wholesale clients, as defined by the applicable jurisdiction, not for public viewing or distribution, marketing communication. Janus Henderson is a trademark of Janus Henderson Group PLC, or one of its subsidiaries. See Janus Henderson Group PLC, GC 02241. 6861-022825.